You're listening to a message from Mercy Culture Church, home of Pastor Landon and Heather Schott in Fort Worth, Texas. For more information about Mercy Culture and ways that you can be a part of it, visit mercyculture.com. Hey, such a privilege uh, to be with you again. Uh, this Sunday, Mercy Culture Conference was absolutely ridiculous. In fact, I think I got born again, again, last week. So I've been on the salvation journey seven days and happy to bring you the Word of God today. I saw one of your staff members say this, you know, sometimes in, in Christian walk, you can just kind of get conferenced out. If you've been to enough conferences, you're kind of like, I checked the list, I never need to do that again. Uh, but it was such a privilege and really a joy to be at Mercy Culture Conference. It wasn't hype, it was just an outpouring of God's spirit. And uh, it's just such a privilege to be able to partner with y'all today in the sharing of God's Word. I've been thinking a little bit about some of the language that we use to describe our churches and what we believe to be the coming movement here in the West. And oftentimes we use this terminology or this phraseology like presence-driven church. And I think it's important that we just take some time this morning to help define what it means to be a part of a presence-driven community. It's not just a tagline. It's not just something that we came up with in our brilliant time away studying to try to figure out how to describe what we're all about. No, actually being presence driven means some core things and I wanna submit it to you this morning for consideration in your own spiritual life. You can't be presence driven if you are not word focused. Now watch, there's a style of preaching and communication that concerns me today. It's a lot of human wisdom, a lot of personal anecdotes, a lot of human stories, but only a little bit of word. So I got about 35 minutes with you this morning. If I don't give you the word, I haven't given you much of anything. It is the word that is sharper than a two-edged sword. It is the word that is a lamp and a light unto our path. It is the word that is God-breathed. It is the word that is spirit and it is life. It is the word that is profitable for all teaching, reproof, correction, and training. And one of the reasons why I love mercy culture is because this is a place where both the word and the spirit change lives. We sing the word, we pray the word, we teach the word, we honor the the word and those activities naturally create an atmosphere where it's easy to engage in his presence. And Fred, if you're reading the word and you find a problem with it, the problem isn't this, it's you. Either you will change the Bible or you will be changed by the Bible, you decide. And when you carry the word, watch, his presence is what carries you. And why is there such a war against the word of God today? Because if the enemy can get you to doubt the word, deconstruct the word, diminish the word, or ignore the word, he can cause you to live a powerless life, an empty Christianity, and a defeated faith. Oh, isn't it always the same tactic from the enemy? Did God really say? See, what makes a presence-driven church a presence-driven church is a place where the word is honored, watch, the spirit is moving, and the people come alive. <laughs> I love the way that the apostle Paul instructs his true son in the faith, Timothy. He said, Timothy, something of value lives inside of you. First I saw it in your grandmother Lois, and then I saw it in your mother Eunice, and now I am convinced it lives in you also. 
So stir that thing up inside of you and remind yourself of the word that I have spoken over you. And in doing so, wage a good warfare according to that word, which tells me this, prophecy is actually ammunition for the days that are ahead. It is how I wage a good warfare in the world around me. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but they are mighty in battle for the pulling down of strongholds. And when you get a word from the one who is faithful to fulfill his word, the one whose word never returns void, you can consider it done before you even see it started. So when you got a word, you can wage a good warfare. About two years ago, I got a word about Seattle. Our church is located in a city called Snohomish. It's a small little farming community of 10,000 folks, 45 minutes north of Seattle. And two years ago, the Lord laid on my heart this word. He said, Snohomish was your lion and your bear, and now I'm giving you a Goliath in Seattle. I said, oh boy. Now watch, prophecy isn't a guarantee. It's an invitation into obedience. Which means when you get a word from God, if all you do is bury it in the sand instead of planting it in the soil, God is not obligated to cause something to come through that you won't honor. The Bible says one man plants, not one man buries. He says one man plants and another man waters, but it is God who brings the increase. So if I get a word at the altar, if I get a word through MC Connect, if I get a word while I'm volunteering on a serve team, I'm gonna take that, I'm gonna water it with the tears of my prayers, and then I'm gonna trust that in God's timing, he will promote and make that word viable both in and through my life. So prophecy is not, I'm gonna sit back and if God really wanna do it, he gonna do it. No, he really wants to do it. Read the Bible. He's really interested in doing incredible things through the lives of submitted people. And I still believe 2,000 years later, it is simple obedience that changes history. Now, two years ago, we got a word. And the Lord said, I'm giving you a Goliath in Seattle. So I've been walking in the city and praying and believing. And all of a sudden, I found a building. And it used to be what they call a Scientology church. And if you think we got strange beliefs, just look into the Scientologists and all that witchcraft. And they got this building two blocks north of the University of Washington. And so we was looking at it and praying and just considering maybe, maybe, just maybe God could do something special again in the city of Seattle. And lo and behold, that building became available. And so I went before our church and I said, church, we have an opportunity to purchase something, but we don't have money, but we do have faith, but the bank won't take faith as a down payment, so we need your money. <laughs> and so we took a $1.3 million offering, it covered the down payment, and on Friday, we became the legal owners of a former Scientology cult church in downtown Seattle. Now watch, the enemy hates losing property. No, don't tell me property ain't spiritual. You are not a renter in Fort Worth, you are an owner. 
You are not a renter in Texas. You are an owner. God has given you the land. The kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdoms of our God and of our King. And to the increase of his government and his peace, there is no end. I'm here to tell you this morning that God has commissioned mercy culture to dispossess the enemies of the land and re-inherit it for God's people and God's special purposes. Oh, that's why God's put favor on your life to buy. That's why God's put a key on your shoulder to open a door that no man can close. That's why God's given you favor to buy a house that you couldn't previously afford. He supernaturally shifted something in your life. He's made a way where there seems to be no way. You are not renters, you are owners. This was God's land before it ever belonged to the enemy and he is coming back to take what has always been his. Now watch, the apostle Peter is writing in the final years of his life. He is appealing to the churches in the Roman Empire, specifically Asia Minor, to understand the significance of what God has done on their behalf. I love the apostle Peter because he uses this really particular emphatic language. He says things like, I implore you. I beg you, I urge you, I remind you, be of one mind, have fervent love, resist the devil, so on and so forth. And Peter is primarily writing Gentiles who have accepted Jesus and been born again, but he is reminding them, this new relationship with Christ, it is stronger than your ethnicity. It transcends your individual culture. It is greater than your politics. It is more transformative than your preferences. It appeals, in fact, to the spirit part of who you are. It places you into the family of God, and it endues you with power from on high to carry out the mission of Christ. It is not just that the Emperor Nero was putting to death the apostles. The entirety of the Roman government was working overtime to subvert this growing movement of Christ followers. And why did the Romans feel so threatened by this new religious sect called Christianity? Because these Christians operated as if there was no other king, no other God, no other ruler, no other power outside the name of Jesus Christ. See, Peter is helping these new Christians deal with things like the hardship of persecution, abandonment, and disappointment. Here's what I found. Disappointment is inevitable, but perpetual victimhood is optional. There was a story of a man who had been so disappointed by people, so he flagged down a taxi in New York City. He told the driver, take me to a place where people won't ever lie to me, hurt me, or disappoint me again. So the taxi driver drove him straight to the cemetery. Hear me, friend, to be alive is to deal with hardship. To be alive is to deal with difficulty. To be alive is to deal with things like disappointment and hurt, for this is what it means to be human. No salvation doesn't exempt me from hardship. It gives me grace and mercy to endure through hardship like a good soldier. See, sometimes it can feel as like relationship with God should cause us to never get sick, cause our kids to never act up, by the way, the only difference between a two-year-old and a terrorist is you can negotiate with a terrorist. 
cause our bosses to never irritate us, but nothing could be further from the truth. See, the gospel calls me to look up in the middle of my storm in order to receive strength to make it to the other side of my storm. Now watch what Peter says to these believers in the Roman Empire. This comes from 1 Peter chapter 2. I love this. This is his language to help describe and define for the New Testament believers what their role looks like as a member in the house of God. I love this. You also, you are like living stones. And you are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. And you are offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's interesting that Jesus calls the religious leaders tombstones, but Peter calls true believers living stones, which means this, it is your confession of faith which literally makes the difference between having life or having death. That's why the Bible says if you believe in your heart and then confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. It is the confession of your mouth that defines the trajectory of your spiritual journey. That's why Joshua pulls the Hebrew children into the valley and he says, choose this day whom you will serve. Either you will serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or you will serve the pagan gods found in the Canaanite wilderness. But make a choice today, and if you choose Yahweh, you will have life and if you choose the pagan gods, you will have death. <laughs> have you ever watched the process of something being built? There are loud noises. There are sparks flying everywhere. There is a disruption in the surrounding area. There is wood that is being cut, rebar that is getting bent, walls that are getting painted, and bricks that are getting placed. One of the dangers that we have in our culture today is we love to watch 30-minute episodes where houses go from disasters to mansions by the time the episode is over, but that's not real life. But see, we've allowed Hollywood to disciple our appetite, and so when things don't happen in a 30-minute context, we have an existential spiritual crisis and get mad at God. That's why you ought to be careful next time you're watching HDTV with your spouse, because they'll lean over and go, oh, wouldn't that be fun to do? No, it's not. <laughs> that ends your marriage real quick. It's a lot of work. Now, they package it in a nice little episode, and the house always sells for way more than they thought it was going to sell, and it always looks really cute, and permits aren't a problem, and money was just there, and everything just happened all at once, and contractors were never late, and we didn't even have to break a sweat. We just went to our dream board, and out popped a brand new house, but the reality is, is that Peter tells the church, you are being built, and being built means life is messy, it means sparks are flying, it means iron is sharpening iron. But it means if you will remain faithful to the process, watch what God will build out of the mess of your life. See, some folks want the beauty of a mansion without the mess of hard work. But you don't get one without the other. The bigger the build, the bigger the mess. But when you got the blueprint, it causes you to have grace for the hardships. See, scripture is our blueprint. It paints us a picture of where we are headed and it encourages us to set our hands to the plow and not look back. 
See, when Jesus warns the crowds about the cost of discipleship, he says things like this. Don't start building a tower until you have first counted the cost so that you can finish what you've started. And don't go to war until you are sure that you are willing to pay the price. Jesus was the worst church growth strategist in the entire world. The crowds gather and they're all ready to do something significant and Jesus turns to them and says, eat my flesh and drink my blood and offers no explanation. And the crowds desert him. And Jesus turns to his disciples and says, will you leave also? And Peter responds, where else are we gonna go? Only you have the words of life. I love how Jesus is even using the language wrapped around his teaching to determine the difference between folks who are there for a good time versus folks who are there for a long time. Listen, when you get your roots planted in the soil, what it helps you survive is every season of life. Whether I'm on the mountaintop at conference, God is good. Whether I'm in the valley of sickness, God is good. Whether I'm in a season of having all my prayers answered overnight, God is good. If I never get another miracle, I don't deserve it. God is still good. My God is faithful at every elevation and my worship belongs to him and him only. Now watch what happens. You know who doesn't have conflict? Dead churches. You know what doesn't have conflict? Dead marriages. You know what never has difficulty? Dead friendships. Do you know why sparks fly? Because we are alive. Hear me, friction is a natural byproduct of any living organism. The question is not will we have conflict, but instead how will we keep our peace while moving through conflict? Hear me friend, conflict is the price you pay for intimacy. We live in a generation that wants to purchase intimacy at a vending machine. But until you've walked through the valley of the shadow of death and sat at a table made for you right in front of your enemies and found a God named Emmanuel, the one who was with you, who will never leave you or forsake you, until the construct of conflict tempers the spiritual ingredients of your heart, you haven't tasted the intimacy you're singing about. Now watch, watch what happens. You need to make a decision like right now. What is your response gonna be when the sharp edge of your stone comes into contact with the sharp edge of somebody else's stone? See, the Bible says it is iron that sharpens iron, but the iron only receives the benefit of sharpening if it remains engaged in the process of development when life gets tough. See, much like a natural house, a spiritual house isn't built overnight. But instead, it requires the participation of people with all kinds of different skill sets and perspectives in order to successfully achieve the finished product. I want you to notice the stones on, on, on stage this morning. You can tell that they were all cut from the same rock, but they all have individual edges and shapes and sizes and colors and hues and tints. And, and I know that they're from the same family, likely from the same boulder, but they've all been cut in a unique and a specific way because in the building of a wall, they're each going to serve a unique and a special purpose. A singular stone doesn't make a house. 
An individual rock doesn't make a foundation, and an individual Christian doesn't make a church. It is when we are built together that we become the spiritual dwelling place for the King of Kings, which means you are not the church alone, but we are the church together. In the creation narrative, out of all the things that God says is good, he stops at man and says it is not good. Why? Because man is alone. Which tells me one of the most dangerous places that you could ever be in your spiritual journey is when you find yourself as a homeless Christian. Oh, I'm just on my own private journey with the Lord. Yeah, and you're one step away from heresy. Oh, it's just me and God. Only God can judge me. He is. It's just me and him in a podcast, and I just get on YouTube and Google all my conspiracy theories, and you know, I just, you know, church kind of has hurt me a little too much. I don't know if I could ever go back there. Yeah, Jesus been hurt by church a lot too, and he still shows up. You gonna be all right. No, you was created for community. No, you was created to build a spiritual house together. You were created to add your stone to somebody else's stone and to have their stone added to your stone and to have Pastor Landon's stone added to your stone so that one day you could take a step back and say, look what the Lord has done. He's taken a bunch of stones that wouldn't have normally fit together, but in his beauty, his brilliance, and his sovereignty, he has sewed us in and today Today, we are the temple of God. Oh, you're not the church alone. You're, you're, you're the church together. You ever get alone? You start believing everything you think? Come on. You need friends who love you enough who tell you you're wrong. You need people who love you enough in life to go, hey, man, listen, you've been in that basement a little too long. You've been on the internet a little too much. You've been binging Netflix a little too much. There's some things that you've started to believe. You believe everything you think. It's not a good place to be. Every time I watch American Idol, I lament the state of friendships in the West. Who told you you could sing? Stop! Oh, you need some friends who love you enough who allow their iron to sharpen your iron. Instead of getting offended, you submit to the sharpening process because you know God is working it out for my good. It don't feel good, it's loud, it's noisy, it's annoying, it's irritating. Welcome to marriage! <laughs> marriage is the greatest discipler of believers that I've ever seen in my life. You find somebody who loves all the annoying parts of you, and you in turn gotta love all the annoying parts of them. And every once in a while you get a picture of what it must feel like for the God of the universe to love you. But you don't give up, why? Because God is working and God is working and God is working and I don't wanna give up until the master is done with every part of my heart. See, we are stronger together, we are better together, we are being built into a spiritual house. And God knew your shape and your size when he sent you to this church. Hear me, friend, do not become bored in your faith because you are withholding your involvement. It is time to build again for our future is brighter than our past. And what is the purpose of the house? Well, thank God, the apostle Peter tells us. It is to make room for the priest to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Why does this house exist? 
so you and I can offer spiritual sacrifice unto him. Remember when you was a kid and you used to play house? My fear is that we got an entire generation that is playing house using the fake as a substitute for the real. Hear me. Porn is not real sex. Social media is not real life. Celebrities are not real role models. Talk shows are not real news. Podcasts are not real church. We are not playing house. We are not playing church. There is simply too much at stake in this region to play around with cheap imitations. Once you have experienced the genuine, you cannot go back to the counterfeit. Hear me, friend. When the church forgets the reason for why it exists, it sells people cheap alternatives to make up for the fact that they've lost their appetite for the authentic. The church exists for the giving of spiritual sacrifice unto God. It is not about you. It has never been about you. It will never be about you. It has always been about him, and that is the best news that there has ever been. So often in the way that we view church, we view it through a consumeristic lens because we live in this part of the world. So we always ask the question, what can church do for me? What can God do for me? What can this transactional relationship provide for me? We treat church like a drive-thru. I want a number three, hold the pickles, extra lettuce. And if it's not the way that I want, I want to talk to the manager or in this case, the lead pastor. And can I just challenge you this morning? This church doesn't exist for you and it never will. It exists for him. And that is very freeing to know. Because now all of a sudden I can give up my right to be offended and upset when things don't go the way that I want them to go because ultimately the church does not exist to assuage my comfort, but instead to position me as a priest who offers spiritual sacrifice unto God for this is our reasonable act of worship. About three years ago, we bought a JCPenney building in town as the church continued to grow. and About 22,000 square feet. It's not huge, but it was quite a bit bigger than what we were meeting in. And when we moved into this thing, it hadn't been remodeled in 30 years. It looked like a JCPenney. It smelled like a JCPenney. And it felt like a JCPenney. We got in. We realized the bathrooms didn't work. The plumbing didn't work. There was no hot water in the building. It was a nightmare from day one. One of the very first things that we had to do after purchasing this property is raise money to build out the new bathrooms. And it was like revival came to Snohomish on the day that we opened our new bathrooms at Pursuits. <laughs> and I still remember the day that we was getting ready to announce that the new bathrooms would be available to use. One of, one of the older ladies in the church, she came up to me and she said, Pastor, I just have one request. I put some money in the building fund. I've been here. I've been praying. I've been on your team. I just got one request as you're getting ready to build these new bathrooms here at Pursuit. I said, what is it? Anything, anything for you, Mildred. What, what would you like? She said, Pastor, we need heated toilet seats at the Pursuit. I said, Mildred, you are in great luck. I said, all of our toilet seats will be heated. She lit up like it was Christmas. I told her, I said, Mildred, if you'll just go ahead and use the stall real quickly right after somebody did in front of you, it'll be preheated just for you. Now, she never came back, but anyways, you get the point. 
No, the church don't exist for me, it exists for him. And I'm a priest who offers spiritual sacrifice. That is my job. Now watch what Peter says, I love this. He says, but you as a chosen people, you are a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation, and you are God's special possession. Why? That you may declare the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. We are a people who have become a priesthood, who have developed into a nation because we are God's possession for the express purpose of having a declaration of praise. You were chosen for this. You were created for this moment in history. You could have been born in any generation, in any part of the world, but God so saw it fit that he put you in Fort Worth. God knew what the region needed, so he sent you. God knew what this community needed, so he equipped you. Before you was ever born, God had a plan for you to fulfill and a place for you to occupy. See, if you believe your life is an accident, you will live a life without purpose. God saw it fit in eternity past to preserve for himself a people out of this region and now together we get to walk into the fullness of what God has always desired us to be. No, you are not what the internet says you are. You are not who the critics think you are. You are not what the culture has accused you of. You are a priest before God and that, my friend, is who you will always be. See, priest was marked people. Oh, they didn't live lives trying to blend in. They understood from birth that they was destined to stand out. Their obsession was living a life pleasing to God. Peter tells these Gentiles in the same way that the Hebrew children had a priesthood with special access to God, now all those who call upon the name of the Lord have become his temple, they have his spirit, and they are his priests. No, my friend, you are not just an overgrown community group that happened to buy a building. You are a holy nation, a nation that is growing, expanding, building, taking new territory, launching new schools, establishing institutions, launching new campaigns. You know what I found? Some people want to be a part of a church as long as it doesn't ask too much of them. But here's what I'm asking of you. Give your whole life to Jesus and hold nothing back. Make church a priority that you refuse to compromise on. Invest yourself in the life of somebody else and trust God that your best days are not behind you, they are ahead of you. Now Peter's writing the Gentiles and he uses this real forensic language to describe their relationship with the divine. He says, you are God's possession, which means purchased which means completely owned, which means you have given up the right to self-define because you were not purchased with your blood, you were purchased with his. You've been bought with a price. You was costly for Christ to redeem. Your life meant his death. Your freedom meant his punishment. And today we stand on the other side of Christ's finished work and we celebrate that we have become his bondservants. Friend, that's why you owe your entire allegiance to Jesus because while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Now watch what Paul says in Ephesians 2. This language of stones is found all throughout the apostolic epistles as the authors of the New Testament help the early believers understand the role that they play in church. 
See, so many of us, as it pertains in church, we are either consumers or we are observers. And both represent wrong perspectives. You are not just an observer. You are certainly not just a consumer. You are a participant in an ever-advancing kingdom. Now, Paul says this in Ephesians 2. He says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but instead you as fellow citizens with God's people and you are members of his household. You are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. See, the Bible describes Jesus as the cornerstone of the, of the, that the church is built upon. Essentially, it just means that Jesus is our foundation. See, once the cornerstone is set, it becomes the basis for determining every measurement in the remaining construction. Everything is aligned to it. All the stability depends on it. Without the cornerstone, the building has no hope of standing strong for the next generation. What does that mean for us today? As the cornerstone of the building of the church, Jesus is our standard of measure and alignment. Not culture, not politics, not peer pressure, not preferred pronouns, not perpetually offended pagans. No, Christ is the measure and alignment for the church today. And hear me, when the culture stone becomes the substitute for the cornerstone, watch out, the church is in trouble. See, the cornerstone is Christ. But watch the other necessary ingredients in the foundation. The apostle Paul says they are apostles and they are prophets. It's important for you to understand this this morning. We still desperately need apostolic and prophetic voices in the church today. Why? Because prophets see God's future but apostles establish God's present. You need a solid base and a compelling vision for what's next if you want the region transformed by the power of Christ. In many ways, many churches have been pastored to death. By that I mean this. They've become little more than complaint-filled communities with leaders who only exist to put out fires and make sure everyone stays happy enough to hopefully return next week. No, friend, we are not asking permission from dead churches to reach the region for Jesus Christ. We're gonna need apostolic voices to establish. We're gonna need prophetic voices to see and declare. And together with Christ as the cornerstone, I believe mercy culture is gonna see a movement of present-filled churches all across this state and frankly, all across this nation. Now watch what Paul says. He says, in him, the whole building is joined together. And it rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You ever have the unfortunate privilege of going to Ikea and buying something? Only to get it home thinking it's going to be easy to set up. And you open the box and your couch is in 700 pieces. And the instructions mock you by saying some assembly required. Yeah, like two weeks of assembly required. 
I think about that as it pertains to the church and the inner workings of what God does through his bride and the advancement of his kingdom. A lot of us want to show up to a finished product and then celebrate like we had something to do with it. But what if today God is challenging you to get involved in the requirement of the assembly? Oh, I got a part to play. Hey, I see a bolt over here. Somebody overlooked this. I'm going to be a one-person committee and serve until this problem is solved instead of just complaining about it. Hey, I can rally some people over here. Hey, I'm going to walk through MC Connect and become a member. Hey, I'm going to start giving and tithing at this altar. Hey, I want to get involved in this worship team. Hey, I want to hold babies in that nursery because children are not a distraction from more important work. They are our most important work. Hey, I want to start to get involved because there is some assembly required. And I love the language of the Apostle Paul mirroring the language of the Apostle Peter. We are being built if you try to build without Christ, you end up alone instead of together. You end up isolated instead of in community. I want you to notice the language. Paul doesn't say with him the whole building is built. It doesn't say for him the whole building is built. It says in him we are joined and built together to become a dwelling place for his spirit. Friend, it means this for us today. God has placed you in the center of himself. He has covered you with his identity, his calling, his gifting, and his resources. You have a new identity. It is marked by Christ himself. And the most important thing that you could ever do is remind yourself, it is no longer I who lives, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have been hidden in Christ. I have been buried in Christ. I have been raised in Christ. I have been covered by Christ. I have been redeemed by Christ. There is now not no one area of my life that doesn't bear the impact of what Christ has done on my behalf. Now watch. The imagery of stones in the New Testament is both prophetic and profound. Not only are stones used in a redemptive sense, but stones are also used to illustrate negative things as well. In John 8, the Bible records that there's a woman who is caught in the act of adultery and the religious leaders throw her at the feet of Jesus, which is the one place she needed to be. And they say, the law of Moses says to stone her, what say you? And of course, in Christ, the law is fulfilled. And so he kneels down in the dirt and begins to write in the sand. And all of a sudden, the Bible says one by one, the religious leaders drop their stones. And Jesus looked at the woman and he said, where are your accusers? Neither do I accuse you. Now go and sin no more. And I was reading this story the other week and it just struck me that you can either use stones to throw or you can use stones to build the choice is yours now offended people use stones to throw but spiritual people use stones to build religious people use stones to throw but spiritual people use stones to grow 
And my hope for you this morning is that God would cause you to learn the art of taking stones thrown at you and turning them into building blocks for you. So the next time someone is taking shots at your past, trying to lie about your future, causing you to get distracted by their drama, just tell them, be careful before you throw that stone because God might just turn that into a building block for my life. Pain was a stone the enemy tried to throw at you, but it's become a building block for your next season. Abuse was a stone the enemy tried to throw at you, but it's become a building block for your life. Hear me, friend. The cross doesn't eliminate my pain. It gives purpose to it. And that is why when we gaze on Calvary's hill, we remember the one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the Father. That's why today you can consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds because you know that it is the testing of your faith that produces perseverance. And if you will allow perseverance to finish its work, you will be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. Hear me, friend. I believe in a prophetic sense, mercy culture is coming into a season where God, in a more illustrative fashion than ever before, is going to be setting joy in front of you that is going to cause you to have a supernatural endurance like you've never had before. I believe y'all are coming into a season, I think it's even prophetic that you're talking about the justice run and the marathon. God has given me a great spiritual gift. I run complete marathons in one block. I fast 40 days in one hour. It's just an incredible anointing, but I really believe that, that, that even as you're talking about the justice run in the marathon, the verse that I had for you is you will run and not grow weary. Why? Because there is something joyful that not only has been set in front of me, but resides inside of me. Now watch, the Bible says this, in his presence there is fullness of what? Joy. That means when you get in his presence, your endurance tank gets filled up to overflowing. You're going to persevere. You're going to stand the test of time. You're going to fight the good fight of faith, and you're going to win. You're not going to give up. You're not going to look back. It don't matter if you're on the mountain or the valley. God is faithful at both elevations. You will simply refuse to be a casualty of the culture wars around you. You will keep your eyes on Jesus because he begun your story. He will finish your story, and friend, he is not done yet. For the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the Father, and he has been given the highest name in all of creation, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that he is Lord to the glory of God our Father. If you will keep joy before you, God will establish your name. If you will guard your character, God will establish your influence. If you will keep your eyes on the author and the finisher of our faith, God will make sure every loose end of your life gets properly connected at the right time. It's your job to stay faithful. We are not in management. We are in sales. Let God handle the results of your life. He's got a pretty good track record. He hasn't let you down. He won't start now. And this God in this moment is working on your behalf. You got some joy set in front of you today. You got a reason to rejoice. You got a reason to be stirred up in the innermost. You ought to have a reason to rejoice this morning knowing I got a river of life 
and it's flowing out of me. And it makes the lame to walk and, and it even makes blind to see and it opens prison doors and it sets the captives free. I don't have a trickle, I don't have a stream, I've got a river and it's teeming with life. Oh, we got some joy this morning. It's set before me. My eyes are on him. My feet are following him. He's gonna guide me in the way that I should go, that I never depart from it. And this God is worthy of all worship and praise. Come on, would you just lift your hands to a holy God? Let me pray for you this morning. Father, now in the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you that scripture calls you our ever-present help in time of need, that we can boldly approach the throne of grace to receive help, that if any man lack wisdom, let him ask and God would give liberally and without reproach. And so we come to you today with hearts and heads bowed low, and we say, God, do what only you can do. No, not by our own might nor by our own power, but by your spirit alone. We thank you that greater is he who is in us than he that is in the world. God, I pray that you would forgive us of all the times that we have doubted the significance and strength of your Holy Spirit that you've placed inside of us. God, would you forgive us of all of the times that we have treated the spiritual house as secular instead of sacred, as common instead of special. God, today, we are here to recommit ourselves as stones in this house that you are building, and we're saying, God, whatever it is, whatever it looks like, wherever I serve, however I can help, I'm just here to see your glory. Better is one day in your court than a thousand elsewhere. Oh, I'd rather be a doorkeeper at Mercy Culture than spend one day outside the presence of God. There is one thing that I have sought and there is one thing that I have asked is to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. So God, today with our heart and our eyes pointed in your direction, would you stir us to overflowing with the joy that the world cannot take because they did not give it a peace that the world cannot take because they did not give it. And today, Mark, a new day in the marathon of faith. I'm running and not growing weary. I'ma rise up on wings like eagles and soar. A thousand may fall at my right and 10,000 at my left, but it will not come near me. I will not fear the pestilence that stalks at day, nor the arrow that flies by night. I've got a God who is working on my behalf. I've got a joy in me. I've got a joy around me. I've got a joy under me. I've got a joy over me. And for the joy that's been set before, I'm gonna burn for him my whole life. Father, we pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. And we say, do your best work in us. And we'll give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Come on, all God's people said, amen and amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Mercy Culture Church. If this podcast has blessed you, we'd like to encourage you to share it with a friend. To learn more about us, find us on social media and online at mercyculture.com. 